from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Thanks for joining us on Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim, and this week we're discussing management of patients presenting with a massive upper GI bleed. Before we get started, make sure to visit the website, that's traumaiCURounds.com, and sign up for our email list, where we'll regularly keep you updated on upcoming episodes, featured guest interviews, and links to our show notes, which are constantly being updated. Further, we'll keep you apprised as to what's coming up in terms of future webinars, podcast collaborations, scientific meetings, and speaking engagements. Also, if you're a fan of the show or believe that we're contributing to your learning and education, please consider supporting the show. How? It's really quite simple. All you have to do is rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcasts. This really helps us grow, and starting this month, we'll be reading out positive comments and giving shoutouts on air to those of you who are supporting us in our efforts to simplify critical care together. Now, when it comes to the management of patients with a massive upper GI bleed, it's no secret that these patients can present in extremis or in the throes of hemorrhagic shock and therefore immediate recognition and institution of life-saving therapies together with bleeding control efforts are really critical to ensure optimal patient outcomes. Despite advances in endoscopic techniques and an understanding of hemostatic resuscitation, one in 10 patients with an upper GI bleed may die or succumb to their bleeding during the course of their hospitalization. Regarding learning objectives, by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, discuss the most common etiologies for a massive upper GI bleed. Number two, describe the initial evaluation and management of patients in hemorrhagic shock. Number three, discuss the indications and timing of endoscopic and non-endoscopic interventions for patients with a massive upper GI bleed. And finally, number four, discuss the indications and timing of operative intervention among these patients. When it comes to the etiologies or differential for massive upper GI bleeds, or any upper GI bleed for that matter, I like to take an anatomic-based approach to this, starting from the nose, mouth, and oropharynx, then proceeding distally along the elementary tract towards the ligament of trites. Now, common things being common, the vast majority of upper GI bleeds may be accounted for by bleeding peptic ulcers, varices, or malignancies. But in a small number of patients with a presumed upper GI bleed, the source of hemorrhage may in fact be due to a non-GI source, as may occur in the setting of massive epistaxis or even massive hemoptysis, as may be seen in the setting of a tracheobronchial malignancy with erosion into an adjacent major vascular structure. As we make our way down the GI tract in the esophagus, esophagitis, malignancy, and Mallory Weiss tears are not uncommon. And in fact, when we discuss the differential for an upper GI bleed, itis and malignancy or cancer can essentially be added to the end of any foregut structure. And that's a simple way of expanding our differential. As stated earlier, the most common etiologies for an upper GI bleed is going to be peptic ulcer followed closely by patients with bleeding varices, whether they be esophageal or gastric. 
Less common etiologies of gastric bleeding include portal hypertensive gastropathy, as may be seen among patients with liver disease or alcohol abuse, as well as Dulafoy lesions and angiodysplasias in patients with, say, renal disease or aortic stenosis. In addition to duodenitis, malignancy, and peptic ulcer disease, other duodenal pathologies include the rare but occasionally seen aortoenteric fistula, particularly among patients with a known history of a AAA or prior aortic graft placement. The triad of jaundice, right upper quadrant pain, and melena should raise suspicions for hemobilia in patients with recent instrumentation of the biliary tree, i.e. an ERCP, or among patients with a history of hepatic trauma with resultant formation of a hepatic vascular biliary fistula. Among patients with a history of foregut surgery and prior gastroenteric anastomoses, a marginal ulcer or ulcer at the anastomotic site may be encountered. Finally, hemorrhagic pancreatitis is another uncommon yet potentially life-threatening cause of massive upper GI bleeds seen in patients with a history of acute pancreatitis. Regarding the initial evaluation and management of patients with a massive upper GI bleed, my approach to these patients is to treat them similarly to a critical trauma patient, meaning that evaluation should occur concurrently to active resuscitation efforts. Regarding the initial assessment, there are really what I feel are a few key or critical points that should be elicited in the A-focused history, B, physical exam, and C, lab and adjunctive investigations. And the overall goals here are to, number one, distinguish an upper from a lower GI source of hemorrhage. Number two, assess the severity of hemorrhage while identifying potential sources of bleeding. And finally, three, identify conditions that may affect subsequent management. So let's break these down. Regarding goal one, A focused history should be performed to elicit a history of bleeding as almost two-thirds of patients with the history of GI bleed, you guessed it, they bleed from the same lesion. Other factors suggestive of an upper source of GI bleed include a history of melena, alcohol abuse or hepatitis, which may suggest a variceal bleed, use of NSAIDs, or a known history of peptic ulcer disease or prior upper endoscopy. Exam findings that may help differentiate an upper versus a lower GI bleed include the presence of melena on DRE or hematemesis witnessed at the bedside, both of which would support an upper GI source versus the presence of blood clots or hematochesia in the stool, which would point more towards a lower GI source or bleeding distal to the ligament of trites. The presence of jaundice, scleral icterus, ascites, or other stigmata of liver disease should also alert one to the presence of varices. In terms of lab findings, as with any acutely bleeding injured patient, do not, I repeat, do not be reassured by a normal hemoglobin. Remember, acutely, patients lose whole blood, and it takes time for those vascular shifts with subsequent hemodilution to occur. At a minimum, a CBC, chem panel, LFTs, and coag should be sent. If available, I would perform point-of-care venous blood gas and send off a TEG as well. 
Findings of an elevated BUN to creatinine ratio, typically greater than 30 to 1, is also suggestive of an upper GI source. And the reason this occurs is that as blood passes along the GI tract, it's absorbed by the small bowel, and this oftentimes occurs in the setting of decreased renal perfusion. The higher the ratio, the more likely bleeding is upper GI in origin. Regarding the diagnostic workup, one area of controversy, in my eyes, it's not really controversial, but it revolves around performing a nasogastric or NG tube lavage. And advocates of this technique argue that it really does help differentiate a massive upper from a lower GI bleed. And for those of you unfamiliar with this technique, we essentially insert an NG tube, ensure placement in the stomach, and instill fluid or saline followed by aspiration of that fluid to identify the presence of a bloody aspirate or coffee grounds, which would support the presence or notion that there's an upper GI bleed as the source of the patient's presentation. This is versus an aspirate, which is clear or bilious which would suggest in the presence of a GI bleed, the source would be distal to the ligament of trites. Previous studies have demonstrated that the presence of a positive NG tube lavage does result in improved time to performance of endoscopy. However, this isn't associated with improved outcomes, mortality, length of stay, or transfusion requirements. So although a bloody NG tube lavage may be specific with a specificity of around 75%, It's insensitive. And to be honest, some of my surgery colleagues may disagree with me on this one, but it's kind of outdated. Now, in terms of goal two, assessing the severity of hemorrhage while identifying potential sources of bleeding, I'm not going to dwell on this too long. I think the severity or depth of hemorrhagic shock can be derived at the bedside with a good physical exam based on a constellation of vital signs, together with findings of a narrowed pulse pressure, elevated shock index, together with the usual signs of hypovolemia, and this should provide you with some idea of how quote-unquote sick your patient is. As mentioned earlier, my practice is to perform a point-of-care-based deficit or venous blood gas on all of these patients, and I like to trend that BD to ensure that we're moving in the right direction and not falling further behind. In terms of goal three, namely identifying conditions that may affect management, This really boils down to taking a focused yet accurate past medical history with particular attention paid to comorbidities and drugs or medications that are known to increase the risk for particular pathologies, for example, NSAIDs and peptic ulcer disease, or increase a patient's risk for bleeding. This includes all forms of antithrombotic therapy from antiplatelets, such as ASA or clopidogrel, to vitamin K antagonists or warfarin, to direct or novel oral anticoagulants, such as dabigatrin, or direct factor 10A inhibitors, such as rivaroxaban or apixaban. In terms of life-saving therapies and initial management, adequate peripheral IV access should be obtained and strong consideration should be given to insertion of a cortis or other large bore central venous catheter with activation of the Institutional Massive Transfusion Protocol, or MTP, combined with the use of a rapid infuser device such as a Belmont. Regarding transfusion strategies for acute upper GI bleeds, a highly cited 2013 NEJM study by Villanueva et al. found that a restrictive strategy, transfusion when hemoglobin falls below 7 grams per deciliter, was associated with improved outcomes versus a more liberal strategy, 
or a transfusion when hemoglobin falls below 9 grams per deciliter. Outcomes included survival at 6 weeks, further episodes of bleeding, and adverse events. Interestingly, portal pressure gradients were higher among patients in the liberal group, and it's important to remember that among patients with cirrhosis and varices, we do really want to avoid over-resuscitation and, in fact, may want to allow for some permissive hypotension to avoid complications associated with elevated portal pressures, which could potentiate further variceal hemorrhage. Also, Never forget to administer prophylactic antibiotics to cirrhotic patients with a variceal hemorrhage as a significant percentage, up to 50%, may develop infectious complications during their hospitalization. Antibiotics in this scenario may also decrease the risk for re-bleeding and potentially mortality. In addition to resuscitation with either whole blood or fractionated blood products in a one-to-one-to-one manner, consideration should also be given to both pharmacologic as well as hemostatic adjuncts. These include platelet transfusion and DDAVP for patients with thrombocytopenia and those receiving or currently taking an antiplatelet agent. Administration of prothrombin complex concentrate should be considered together with vitamin K and or fresh frozen plasma for patients with life-threatening hemorrhage on warfarin. Aduracizumab for patients on dabigatrin, PCC or endexinate for patients on direct factor 10A inhibitors. Furthermore, PPI therapy plus or minus octreotide should be initiated in an effort to treat the two most common etiologies of an upper GI bleed namely peptic ulcer disease and variceal hemorrhage. The debate regarding continuous infusion of PPI versus bolus therapy is still out. Personally, for patients with a massive upper GI bleed, I typically will start with an 80 milligram IV bolus of pantoprazole followed by a continuous infusion at 8 milligrams per hour. And in the case of octreotide for suspected variceal hemorrhage, I will still continue to start with a 50 mic IV bolus followed by a 50 mic hourly infusion. In terms of duration of therapy for PPI, we typically continue this for 72 hours and then we'll also continue it on an outpatient basis. Now, in recent years, much has been written on the utility of tranexamic acid or TXA among bleeding trauma patients, as well as in other settings, including postpartum hemorrhage, as well as as an adjunct to decreasing allogeneic RBC transfusions during elective cardiac surgery. Last year, an international, well-designed, placebo-controlled, randomized trial halted published in The Lancet, was performed to determine if TXA was associated with decreased five-day mortality due to acute GI hemorrhage versus placebo. Interestingly, the authors found no difference in the rate of death due to bleeding or re-bleeding, nor were there any differences among any of the subgroups for the primary outcome. Again, we know based on previous studies that timing of administration really has a critical role both in the efficacy and safety of TXA administration. And as you can imagine, the timing or onset of GI bleeding is not going to be anywhere near as clear as the time that someone gets shot or hit by a car, for example. One other pharmacologic adjunct that I typically don't think of or at least remember is administering erythromycin to patients with an acute upper GI bleed. The whole theory or idea here is you want to improve gastric motility 
to clear it of blood or clots prior to or at the time of endoscopy. Regarding our third objective, indications and timing of endoscopic interventions and non-endoscopic interventions, these days I think that most people would agree that an EGD performed within the first 24 hours is an acceptable strategy in the vast majority of patients with an upper GI bleed, and the exception here might be patients with a suspected variceal hemorrhage in whom endoscopy should be performed within 12 hours of presentation. I always joke that in the eyes of our GI colleagues, patients always seem to be either too unstable or too stable to scope. But the one key tenet to bear in mind and ensure is that adequate resuscitation is being actively performed leading up to the initial endoscopy and attempts at hemorrhage control. This, of course, implies reversing any pre-existing coagulopathies as much as possible, and if you find yourself in a scenario that despite aggressive resuscitation efforts, you're either falling behind or can't keep up, endoscopy may not be the right first intervention, and you should be having discussions with the patients and their loved ones about other options, specifically surgery. For patients who are moribund or deemed to be poor operative candidates, IR angioembolization has been increasingly shown to be a safe and reasonable alternative. Now, whether or not this should be used as first-line therapy versus in hemodynamically stable bleeding peptic ulcer patients where endoscopic hemostasis has failed twice or for whatever reason isn't possible, the, the role of IR angioembolization, I believe, still remains to be defined. For patients at high risk for aspiration, a definitive airway should be secured prior to endoscopy. Of note, outcomes of urgent, meaning within 6 hours versus early, or EGD performed between 6 and 24 hours, really don't seem to demonstrate much difference in terms of outcomes. In a 2020 study out of Hong Kong, Lau and colleagues found that among patients with an acute upper GI bleed at high risk for rebleeding as defined by a glasgow Blatchford score of greater than or equal to 12, endoscopy within six hours was not associated with improved survival versus endoscopy performed between six and 24 hours. Word of caution. Patients with hemodynamic instability or patients who are transient or non-responders were excluded from the study as well as the vast majority of studies that have looked at early versus urgent EGD. At the time of endoscopy, the forest classification is used to describe peptic ulcers, and this description is important as it, number one, helps us to identify which lesions require intervention, and number two, it also helps stratify the risks for early rebleeding in patients with peptic ulcer disease. Just to go through the score really quickly, and you don't need to memorize this, a forest score of 1A refers to active or pulsatile bleeding. 1B, active non-pulsatile bleeding, 2A, a visible non-bleeding vessel, 2B, adherent clot, 2C, hematin on ulcer base, and finally 3, a clean base without signs of recent bleeding. As you go from a 3 upwards to a 1A, the risk of rebleed starts at 5% and then doubles as you go up. So a clean base without signs of recent bleeding or forest score 3 lesion has a 5% risk of rebleed, 10% for 2C, 20% 2B, 40% 2A, and by the time you get to forest scores 1A and B, 
there is approximately a 60% risk of rebleeding. In addition to the forest classification, other risk factors for rebleeding include number one, ongoing hemodynamic instability, number two, a hemoglobin less than 10, three, large ulcers, and these are defined variably in the literature greater than or equal to one to three centimeters, as well as location. So ulcers located in the duodenal bulb or proximal lesser curvature also have a higher risk for rebleed. In general, in the absence of absolute indications for surgical intervention, suspicion for rebleeding should be managed with a repeat or second endoscopy in order to rule out a new source of bleeding or rebleeding from the originally identified source. And in general, when our gastroenterology or endoscopy colleagues go to perform these hemostatic interventions, we usually use a combination of therapies, whether that be injection together with clipping or sclerotherapy. So there are many options available when it comes to control of hemorrhage from upper GI sources. When it comes to the indications and timing of operative intervention among patients with a massive upper GI bleed, a number of factors really do need to be taken into consideration, including patient comorbidities, a history of upper GI bleed, the use of PPIs or failure of medical therapy. And as we've already noted, in general, first-line therapy would be endoscopic interventions. In patients who rebleed following uh, initial attempts at endoscopic control, in general, they should go for a second endoscopy. However, if patients are hemodynamically unstable and have ongoing active aggressive resuscitation efforts underway, in general, my preference would be to get these patients to the operating room. Given the numerous potential sources of an upper GI bleed, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, I'd really like to limit our discussion to the surgical management of gastric and duodenal ulcers, which are by far the most common causes of bleeding that will require surgical intervention. And in terms of key principles, number one, this is not the time for minimally invasive surgery, so put the chopsticks away and grab a 10 blade. Number two, following your midline incision, get your retractor system of choice set up and you'll want to mobilize the duodenum or cocorize it in the setting of a bleeding duodenal ulcer. Number three, for bleeding ulcers that are gastric in origin, you may simply consider resecting the ulcer using a TA or a linear stapler. That way you get your biopsy and hemostasis at the same time. Now, for bleeding duodenal ulcers, you want to open D1 lateral to the vein of mayo and extend this proximally for a couple of centimeters onto the stomach, tack up your cut edges, and have your lighting and suction ready to get initial hemorrhage control using a combination of digital as well as sponge stick or peanut compression. This is going to be followed by three-point ligation of the GDA and transverse pancreatic artery, followed by Heineke Mikulich pyloroplasty. Pro tip, I always like to feed a nasoenteric feeding tube beyond the duodenotomy into the jejunum prior to closing my pyloroplasty. And in patients who have never been treated with PPIs, a truncal vagotomy is not necessary. If the patient is stable and you have time to do so, Performing a truncal vagotomy together with oversewing of the ulcer, which is the typical acute operation of choice, is associated with about a 5% risk of rebleeding. Now, in the setting of a known intractable ulcer which bleeds, 
The procedure of choice for chronic bleeding would be a vagotomy and drainage procedure, typically in the form of antrectomy, and that procedure is associated with an approximately 2% risk of recurrence of bleeding. In terms of key take-home points for today's episode, number one, make sure to perform a focused and accurate history and physical exam. These are critical in order to distinguish an upper from a lower GI source of hemorrhage, as well as assess the severity of hemorrhage while identifying potential sources of bleeding and conditions that may affect subsequent management. Number two, avoid over-resuscitation. And in the absence of active myocardial ischemia, a transfusion target of seven is a reasonable starting goal. Three, make wise use of adjuncts. This includes reversal agents for antithrombotic therapy, as well as antisecretory agents such as PPIs, prokinetic agents such as erythromycin, and among patients with cirrhosis and varices, somatostatin analogs and antibiotics. Number four, the vast majority of patients should proceed to endoscopy, ideally within 6 to 24 hours. One thing that I didn't emphasize is be present. Many of these patients will require a multimodal, multidisciplinary approach, and as a surgeon, it will help to be at endoscopy to see the ulcer, understand the anatomy, such that if patients fail or become hemodynamically unstable, whether or not they undergo a second repeat endoscopy or not, by the time you get to the OR, you already have a sense as to what the underlying pathology is. I want to thank you once again for joining us on Rounds. I'm truly honored and humbled that you would take time out of your busy schedules to tune in and listen. As always, if you're enjoying the show and the content, please do rate, review, and subscribe. That really does help with our growth. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.